But anyway, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I am Josh. I'm the kids pastor here at Grace, and I'm excited to be here to preach this morning. Um, let me pray and uh, get us kicked off, and then we'll dig into God's Word. Father, thank you <coughs> for this morning, for the opportunity to uh, open your Word and hear from you. Lord, I pray that uh, through your Spirit you would speak to us, God, that you would uh, empower me to deliver your Word, God, that uh, you would um, deliver it to the, the heart that needs to hear it today, God, that you would correct and instruct um, the mind in this room that is uh, attempting to um, handle some, uh, some difficulties in their life on their own. Lord, I pray that you would teach us that you are the God who makes a way when there seems to be no way possible, God. You are the God who takes uh, nothing and, and turns it into something. And Lord, we uh, are so thankful that you have called us out of dark into light. I pray this morning, Father, for the person who has never turned their life over to, to your son, Jesus, and receive forgiveness for their sins. I pray today might be that day that they would see that there has been a, a way made for them uh, to come to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, I had the opportunity, three years straight, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, to go uh, on several mission trips to Haiti. And if you've ever been on an international mission trip, you know that when you go on a trip like this and you see uh, and experience the, the sights and the sounds and the smells of a third world country or a developing country or something like that, uh, that you come back differently than when you went. It just leaves a mark on you. It's like God takes uh, a branding iron and kind of just like uh, brands some memory, some experience, something like that into uh, your character, into the fiber of who you are. Um, and I remember this one occasion, we were walking through a slum in uh, City Soleil, uh, one of the poorest slums in, uh, in the world, in fact. And we had a Haitian guide who was out in front of us, uh, and he was kind of leading us through and explaining to us, uh, you know, what this little area was over here and the churches over there and, um, you know, just different things like that. And uh, he spoke English pretty well. And I remember walking behind him. I was at the front of the line, um, and I was hoping that people were behind me still, you know. Uh, I was at the front of the line, and this guy begins to sing. And I, I recognized the tune at first, um, and I kind of was trying to place it. Like, if you ever hear a song, and you're like, man, where did I know that from? Uh, that's kind of what was going on. He starts to sing this little song, uh, and he sang it in English. He said, he will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. How's it finish? He will make a way for me. You guys know the song, right? And I remember walking behind this guy as an American teenager who had an uh, unlimited amount of resources uh, and things at my fingertips that this man would never see in his life. And I remember walking past piles of trash and smelling the human filth and everything as this guy sings this song about God making a way for him. And I remember this question just crawling slowly through my mind. How could someone living in the middle of so much poverty and hopelessness have confidence that there is a God out there who will make a way for me when I need him? How will he make a way even when there doesn't seem to be any way possible? And that's the question you came for this morning. That's what you want to have answered. Uh, we want to know, can God really be trusted to make a way for me? Can I really count on him in the middle of what I'm experiencing, in the difficulty I'm facing to come through for me when I need him the most? And if we're honest, even the most experienced veteran believer in this place this morning has been haunted by this question. It plagues us. Can we really trust God? We've watched him do amazing things in our life. And we still ask the same question, can I really trust him? And so if you're asking that question and you walked in asking that question, you think, you know, man, I'm all alone. I'm not going to tell anybody in here that that's what I'm going through. Then listen, you're in good company. 
Because every one of us, if we're true to ourselves, we've asked that question, can we count on him? So let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Find Mark chapter 6, verse 30 in your Bibles. And we're going to look at Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's 5,000 men uh, is what the scripture teaches. And we kind of limit it to that in our thinking. But it's actually probably closer to, some scholars say, (coughs) 15 to 20,000 if you include the women and children. So this is an enormous crowd. This is a stadium uh, sellout here. The miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is probably the most well-known miracle in all of Scripture. It's probably the one, if you're familiar with it, you heard as a little uh, child when somebody handed you a little Dixie cup of goldfish and a couple of pieces of bread and you nibbled on it, you know, as you sat on a rug and they told you the story. I shared this story with my boys last night. Uh, I opened our little Jesus storybook Bible that we give away during our dedications. I opened it, <coughs> excuse me, and as I was uh, going through the story, uh, I told the boys, I said, I want you to listen and, and just kind of pay attention and see what God teaches you. And uh, we got to the end of it, and I closed the book, and I asked Ryan, my five-year-old, I said, all right, I said, what did you learn? And uh, he can handle that question. He looks at me, and he says that God can do many miracles, you know. Uh, like this one right here. I said, good. I said, where'd you learn that? He said, I learned that at church. I said, good. I looked over at Scott, my unpredictable little uh, near three-year-old, and I said, what did you learn? And he cuts his eyes at Ryan like, what should I say? (laughs) Then he cuts his eyes back at me, and I thought, man, what's he going to do? So I thought, maybe I need to restructure the question a little bit. I said, okay, what did Jesus do with the bread? He looks at me like this. His eyes get kind of big, and he cuts him at at Ryan again, and he goes, he ate the bread. (laughs) And I was like, what? And then he ate the salad. Salad. Ryan don't like salad. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? You know, like, what a story did we just go through here? I don't know. Um, but uh, it's pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool story. Every time that this miracle occurs, uh, it occurs four times in, in, uh, in Scripture. In each of the four Gospels, it's the only one that shows up in all four Gospels. Each time it shows up, it's at the high point or the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this miracle has a way of drawing a line in the sand for many of Jesus' followers. Um, when, he, when, he set, when he did this miracle, he made some statements afterward about feasting on his flesh and things like that. And his followers decided, man, we can't listen to that. That's, you know, that's too tough of a saying for us to go with. And so many of them turned away. When the Jews heard him say something about feasting on his flesh, they decided we're going to kill him. And so this miracle here in Scripture is drawing a clear line in the sand. And while all of Jesus' miracles were amazing, this one more than any other shows off his power to take nothing and turn it into something. In terms of the number of people affected, this was far and away the largest of his miracles. And while each gospel writer approaches telling the story a little bit differently, it's clear if we look at the focus of the passage every time that Jesus' ability to make a way when there seemed to be no way is the point of the passage. As we look at miracles in Scripture, we need to remember and kind of remind ourselves why they are put in place. We have a tendency sometimes to get focused on uh, just the magic act, so to speak, of the miracle. And we miss the spiritual blessing. We miss the point of it. And so we need to remember and we need to teach our kids that miracles were never intended to be a magic show. Okay, But that's what happens to the crowds when they follow Jesus around. They're thrill seekers. All they want is to see a magic show. They want to see Jesus perform the next trick that he's going to do, and so they missed the point of what he was doing. Miracles in Scripture were meant to point people to the Savior. If you look at John's purpose statement in his gospel, I think chapter 20, verse 31 maybe, he says that all these things were written, including miracles, so that we might believe. All these things were written, including miracles, so that we might believe. And miracles also give us 
uh, proof of Jesus' deity. In Jesus' day, this was a huge battlefront for the church. Was Jesus God or was he not God? Because if he's God, we should listen to him and we should do what he says. If he's not God, then we need to get rid of him and all of his followers. And miracles almost always involve some natural need being met in a supernatural way. Think about some of the miracles you're familiar with. Jesus calming the storm. Jesus raising Jairus' little girl back to life. Jesus turning water into wine. There was always a need, all right, that was present, that people had something they needed done or uh, something needed changed, and Jesus comes along and he meets that need in a supernatural way. And finally, miracles point to the brokenness of our world and our need for restoration. All right, I'm teaching a class on Sunday nights right now. It finishes up this evening, and it's called The Story. And one of the big things we've talked about is how our world is broken. And if you look around, it's not hard to see that things are broken. Families, sickness, job situations, cars break down, our kids walk away from the faith. I mean, things happen in our world because of sin, because the world we live in is broken. And so when Jesus comes along and he does some miracle, it's pointing out the fact that it wasn't supposed to be this way. And that he's going to make all things right one day. So why did the Holy Spirit put this miracle in the way that he did in Scripture? Warren Wearsby says it this way. It's a textbook clash between human wisdom and between heaven's wisdom. It's like there's a car wreck right here in Scripture. Bam! These two cars, human's wisdom and heaven's wisdom, just slam into each other at 75 miles an hour. And there's some wreckage. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. We'll go through this together slowly. The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught on their little mission trip where they had gone around preaching and healing and teaching. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and the disciples had no leisure, no break time, even to eat. And so they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So sometimes Jesus would take his guys and go up on a mountain to one of their favorite places and kind of just camp out a little bit. Sometimes he would get in a boat. And they would just kind of sail off because it's kind of hard to get in the boat if you're not in the boat, you know. And so they would get in the boat and they would just sail off and spend some time together. If you've ever had a long week at work and you're just worn out and all you want is to sit down and rest, like you understand what they're going through here. Like they are completely drained, traveling, teaching, healing, dealing with the demands of the crowds. And so they set off for a little mini sabbatical. Meanwhile, in verse 33, the scripture says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their own foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. So if you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, there's little towns dotted all around the Sea of Galilee. These were fishing towns. They set up there because they could make a living and provide for their family. And so these people are familiar with this guy, Jesus. This is one of the key places that he ministers. And so they look up and they see that uh, Jesus is headed off this direction, and they're on to his plan. So instead of giving him a little time to kind of rest and recharge and slow down, the scripture says that all the surrounding towns begin to race to the place where Jesus is headed. So they see the boat, they see it headed off in this direction, and people begin to hoof it over around the Sea of Galilee as fast as they can to beat Jesus to the spot. Now, if you want to picture what this looked like, Um, just picture the Black Friday lines outside Target or Best Buy or someplace like that. If you've ever been to one of these uh, crazed uh, morning shopping, it is a wild time. I did it one time, and I I pretty much promised myself I'll never do it again. Carrie tried to talk me out of it. She was like, you really don't want to do this. And I was like, no, I do. There's a pair of shoes I need to get, you know, yeah. Um, And so I show up at Belk by myself, 
a uh, weird place for a man. You'd think I'd have gone to, to Sears and got something craftsman. But I show up at Belk, and I'm standing in line, you know, with all these people, like, four in the morning or something like that. It's cold as snot, and, like, people are coughing and everything like that. And I'm like, man, I should have just stayed home. Like, what am I doing here, you know? Everybody else is sleeping, and here I am. Um, but over and over again in Scripture, Jesus was surrounded by people. He found himself constantly being pushed in on and crowded and having his shoulder tapped on and somebody whispering in his ear and tugging at his shirt. The crowds kept coming. And if you look at uh, the tense in the Scripture, oftentimes you will see that the, the Scripture writers, the Gospel writers, use the imperfect tense because it gives the idea that there is a continual coming of people, a continual crowd and line just waiting to get a piece of Jesus' time. But look at verse 34. How does Jesus respond to the crowds? Does he respond like you would have? I don't know. Probably different than how we would have responded. Verse 34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so he saw this opportunity to teach them about the kingdom, to deal with the greatest need that they had in their hearts. Many of them didn't even know that that was their greatest need. They came hungry and they were looking to be filled. And Jesus began to teach them about the kingdom. The word in the Greek here uh, used for Jesus's emotion is one of my favorite. It's the word splognitsamai. Splognitsamai. I had to work on how to say that. Like you can Google it, you know, and like look up how to say stuff. Um, not too hot on my Greek anymore, but Mark chooses this expression because it means this. It's the depth of emotion in Jesus's day. It's where they thought emotion came from, from the bowels, from way down deep. And so the most genuine deep emotion that was stirred within a person would come welling out of that place. Now I can tell you uh, that um, this was definitely the seed of something, the bowels, but it's not love and affection and pity and compassion. All right. Uh, I can't speak for you, but my response would not have been to be moved down in my bowels when I saw crowds following us. I would have been disturbed. I would have been frustrated and thought, go away, man. Just leave us alone. But the scripture tells us there was something in the eye of these crowds. There was something in the eye of the people that were running around and had ran all the way from their hometown to meet him and see what he was going to do. It says he saw them as shepherdless sheep. It's fascinating that Mark touches on this picture of a shepherd here because he, he could have completely left this part out, but he's touching on something in the Old Testament he wants you to make a connection with. Psalm 23, 1 and 2 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. We're going to come back to that. Isaiah 40, 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. Do you hear the compassion in that verse? Ezekiel 34, 14 and 15. I will feed them with good pasture. They shall lie down in good grazing land and I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Sounds a lot like God talking at the end of Revelation when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. There's this relationship there. Zechariah 10, 2, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for the lack of a shepherd. And so one of God's favorite pictures for his son was that of a shepherd tending and watching and observing and loving, sacrificing and making a way for his sheep. And when the shepherd makes a way for the sheep, what do sheep do? They follow. They naturally follow where the shepherd is leading them. So let me ask you this question this morning. Is God leading you to become a more compassionate, loving, 
caring person, the people around you, the people in your little, in your little what, uh, what the scripture calls your little house, your little uh, sphere of influence, are you becoming more compassionate day in and day out by walking with Jesus Christ and seeing them differently? Do you see their needs and your heart hurts and you think, man, you know, God, can you help me? Can you use me uh, to meet that need in that person's life? 1 John 4.19 says this, we love or we show compassion because he first loved us. John Piper says in his book, Desiring God, love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of other people. So love is the overflow of the joy that you have in God that causes you to gladly meet people's needs around you. You see, joy becomes love and love becomes compassion. And then what happens is needs around you begin to get met because what? You first found your joy in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Have you ever thought about that God didn't just save you to take you home to heaven? Have you ever thought about the fact that God saved you to make you a joyful person through the midst of whatever it is you are walking through presently in your life? Whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty, whatever trouble, whatever hardship you are going through, God has not saved you just so you can pass time to go to heaven. God has saved you so that you can exude joy and you can be a picture of a radiant follower of Christ to someone around you who needs to see that it does make a difference when a person walks with Jesus, that it does make them a more joyful person. Think about, uh, say, for example, a nurse in an ER, all right? And she deals with stuff all the time and she deals with some difficult situations. And what happens? She has the opportunity to exude joy to someone who comes in with a broken arm and say, you know, not just let me fix your arm, not just let me tend to your, your wound, but let me love you. Let me show you compassion and care for you. Or think about the stay-at-home mom, right? Some long days, yeah? Some real long days. And God's giving you this little ministry right around your feet that if you will tap into the joy that Jesus wants to put into your life, it will dump out and flow over onto your kids. They don't have to be distractions. They don't have to be getting in your way. They can be your little ministry if you will tap into the love, the joy that Jesus wants to put into your life. You know why Jesus wants his joy to be in you? Because he knows you can't contain it. When he puts that joy in you, it's one of those things uh, that just kind of shoots out of everywhere in your life. You can't handle it. You find yourself giving and helping and providing and sacrificing on behalf of someone else, making a way for someone like you've never done before. And somebody's like, why in the world are you doing that? I don't know. God's just changing my life. Sounds a lot like the shepherd that Mark points out here in the middle of this passage. See, the trouble is when we read our Bibles, we read them so quickly because, I don't know, maybe you got three or four chapters on your reading plan and you got a ton to do that day on your iCal calendar and, and, and you just don't have time to read the Bible slowly, right, and thoughtfully. But maybe if we'll slow down and ask God to open these pages and illuminate it to us in such a way that we see things we've never seen before in there, then maybe we'll see some of this stuff. Verse 35. It grew late and his disciples came to him and they said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Now, before we get off on the disciples and we start pointing fingers and saying, oh man, look at how they're handling it. You know, they're missing the point and Jesus is about to smack them in the head, you know. Before we begin to do all that, let me ask you, how would you have solved the problem? If you're in this situation, 
what would you have done? Probably the same thing they did. You'd have looked around, you'd have dug in your pockets, pulled out the lint, you know, a little chapstick. I don't know what we're going to do, Jesus. I don't know how we're going to fix this one. See, the trouble is, we get into this, we, we start to try to solve problems on our own, don't we? We try to fix things ourselves. And so instead of going to God and saying, Lord, I need your wisdom. I need your wisdom for this situation. We just pragmatically say, what makes the most sense? What's the most logical thing for me to do in this situation? That's what I'm going to do. Let me give you four traps connected to that kind of thinking. Number one, human wisdom sees obstacles and not opportunities. Human wisdom sees the obstacle in front of you that you can't get over or around, and you miss the opportunity. I can almost see Jesus smiling right here as he sees this problem shaping up to be something that his friends can't handle, and he's going to have to rush in and save the day. They're over here scratching their heads. You know, they're checking their pockets. They're looking around. Hey, you got anything? Oh, you got, no. And Jesus is just smiling, thinking, oh, man, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. See, Jesus saw an open door. He saw a chance to, to meet the need of this spiritually disoriented crowd and to build the faith of his followers. The disciples saw the same door, but because of the way they were thinking, it was slammed shut in their face. Trap number two, human wisdom leads to dependence on self instead of God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths, what? Straight. Does it say easy? No. No, if we've lived for any amount of time, we know that it's not gonna be easy. But God tells us if we will trust in him and don't trust in ourselves, that he will make our path straight and guess what else? He will walk with us through those difficult days. You see, human wisdom teaches us to lean on ourselves. It says, look around and measure your own resources and see if you can figure this thing out for yourself. You're a self-made man, right? You can do it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Fix your problem. The trouble with doing that is we begin to believe a lie that we can make a way for ourselves. We begin to believe a lie. You know what? The enemy, Satan, loves for you to believe a lie. He loves it when you start buying into his lies. Maybe when he perverts or he twists the truth just a little bit and you think, yeah, you know, that's right. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Satan comes along, he twists the truth just a little bit and he gets Eve to buy into a lie. See, that's what the enemy wants, man. He wants you to try to hack it out on your own. He wants you to go it alone. You know why? Because sink or swim, whether your resources can fix the problem or not, you're dependent on you. And so you know what happens? Let's say you sink and you bomb and your solution is a dismal failure. You crawl off into the corner, you lick your your wounds and you just kind of lay there and sulk, right? And your faith is taking a blow. Or let's say you can fix the problem on your own and it actually works and somehow you muster up the resources and the smarts to fix it, okay? What happens then? You're over here going, not bad. I can do this. I can handle things, right? Either way, you're not dependent on God. Many of you need to repent of this kind of unbiblical attitude. It's kind of a part of who we are sometimes as Americans. For all the good, man, that we get from being an American, sometimes we have this mentality that we can make a way for ourselves. That's why some people in America struggle to believe the gospel. Did you know that? Because they think, I've got to add something to this. This can't be all there is. 
I've got to add something else to what Jesus has done. But when he hung on that cross, his arms were stretched out and he was whipped and he was beaten. And more than that, he took the wrath of God because of your sin and he died the death that you should have died and he lived the life that you couldn't live. When he hung there and he said, it is finished, let me tell you something, you can't add to it. You can't add to it. He paid the price. It's over. It's done. Trap number three, human wisdom steers our thinking away from the direction God desires. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. You guys are probably familiar with Romans 12. It says, don't let your mind get trapped or, or shoved into thinking the way the rest of the world thinks, but let your mind be renewed daily in the refreshing waters of God's word. Here's something you can jot down. Biblically trained minds produce transformed lives. A biblically trained mind, a scripturally saturated mind, produces a transformed life. You go to God's word, you're regular in there, he's going to put his wisdom into your mind, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to face a difficulty, and your first response, maybe for the first time in a long time, is not going to be to say, what can I do to fix it? But you're going to say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Trap number four, human wisdom focuses on the results and not the process. I had a wrestling coach that used to tell me in high school, he used to say, don't worry about the win-loss column, man. You're so wigged out about this, you can't even go on the mat and wrestle. You can't even do what you need to do. Just go out there and do the right things and the wins will take care of themselves. Trusting God for the outcome teaches us to think like Jesus. It tells us, say no to human wisdom, say yes to heaven's wisdom. (coughs) Verse 37, but Jesus answered them. He said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? In the Greek, the word you is emphasized for a big reason because Jesus wants them to feel the bulk of this burden, that there is a problem facing them that they cannot handle. He wants them to feel the weight of their own weakness as they look out at the crowds and they realize we can't do anything about this one. I guess it worked because they answered Jesus with a touch of sarcasm, right? Kind of, uh, it's kind of refreshing in a way to see somebody interact with Jesus in that way, you know, and we can kind of say, okay, Lord, and we can kind of share our real heart and our real feelings with him. They say, you want us to come up with eight months worth of laborers' wages to have enough money to fit this grocery bill? Are you kidding? We're talking about 15,000 people here, Jesus. Jesus' plan is working, man. He's like, if you've ever had, <laughs> if you've ever had like a, a bruise or something like that, you know, and somebody bumps up against it or they punch it or something like that, it's irritating. You kind of want to back away. And Jesus has a good way of kind of pressing the bruises in our life, doesn't he? Like it kind of irritates him just a little bit. And you're like, ah, oh, don't mess with that. And he's like, no, 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 come here. That's what he's doing here. Verse 38, Jesus kind of ignores their sarcasm and their response. And he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. He overlooks their sarcasm, and it's almost like he's saying to them, just give me what you do have. I'm not concerned with what it is or how much it is. Just put it in my hand. Let me ask you a question. Where did this miracle take place? Did it take place in the hands of the disciples who were trying to figure it out for themselves, or did it take place in the hands of Jesus? See, it's a simple lesson here for us. He's saying, just bring me, give me what you have. Give me that little talent that you think couldn't be used to serve me in my church. Give me that heart of compassion and watch me use you in the food pantry back here on Mondays and Wednesdays to love on some people that are down and out. 
Give me that, that desire to work with a, a three-year-old in the twos and threes room that we hear sometimes in here and watch me use it in, a, in an amazing way. Some of us are afraid to get plugged into serving because we have a tendency to look at the gift in our own hands. Instead of just taking it and putting it in Jesus' hand and say, you know, it's not a whole lot, but Lord, just take it and multiply it. If you'll just take it and give it to him, he will do things that you could never even imagine doing. This probably goes without saying because you probably heard this somewhere before, but the, the loaves of bread that Jesus is about to pass out, these aren't like the big bakery loaves of bread. These aren't the big, uh, like the Hawaiian sweet rolls. I love those things. We had some last night. They're not those like big kind of soft, fluffy uh, rolls. These are like little hard round rocks. Um, almost like bread of the, the common poor people. And the fish were like salty little tiny sardines. So we're talking uh, what Marley handed them this morning, like would have been probably about it. A little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. Jesus commanded them in verse 39 to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, probably so that Jesus could do this in kind of an orderly manner. I don't know about you guys, but I picture this miracle with like thousands of people scattered across the hillside and the disciples are kind of like, now, did you get some already? Or uh, did, did I hand some to you yet? But Jesus had them sit down in the uh, formation kind of of a table of how they ate. And so there might be like 20 people this way and 10 people here and then another 20 this way. And the disciples would actually walk into uh, the middle of this kind of makeshift table and pass out the bread and pass out the fish like this. And they would move from company of, of, of people to a company of people. And it's interesting here that Mark calls attention to the green grass. Now we're going to miss this detail if we're just blazing through here. But Mark calls attention to this green grass because the grass in this area in Palestine most of the year was not green. It was only green during the time of the Passover. Scholars think that this miracle probably took place one year before Jesus' last Passover and crucifixion. So as he's taking bread in his hands, and he's about to go on and tell people he's the bread of life, as he's taking this bread in his hands and he's breaking this bread and he's giving it out freely, to meet the need and satisfy the need of the people. Did he have in mind his own body that would be broken and it would be given out freely to meet the need of the people? When he set the people down on the green grass and he looked out over the hungry flocks, did he have in mind the picture of Isaiah 40 and Ezekiel 34, the shepherd who tends the lambs and loves them and takes care of them and provides for them? We have to wonder, like, what's going through Jesus' mind as he's about to do this? Verse 41 Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them all and they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So Jesus takes this bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, barely enough to fill up a kid's lunch tray. And they begin handing it out. And you can picture the scene happening as they have this basket hanging on their arm and they dip their hand in there and they set some bread and fish in front of somebody. And they dip their hand in there again and they begin to wonder as they look out over the hillside, is there gonna be enough to go around? But every time they dip their hand back in, what? There was always more. There was always enough. And it's almost like God saying to the disciples, you see what happens when you trust me? Like I am enough to meet any need in your life. You may not understand how it's happening, but I'm going to make a way for you in your life. I can kind of picture the disciples' faces as uh, the look of disbelief and shock just begin to slowly sink on them. And they kind of look over at their buddy over there with a the basket, and they're like, did you see what he's doing? 
can you believe this? This is unreal. He's actually, he's feeding these people. This is unbelievable. And the people push back from the table and they rub their bellies and they stretch their arms out, you know, and they're like satisfied and everything after a good meal. And they take up the baskets and there's pieces left over. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. And they look down in the basket and they think, wow. Last night I read this story to my boys and they listened almost quietly as the voice of their dad read a story of God's faithfulness to those he loves. And if you listen to this passage, let it read itself to you. If you listen to this passage, you can hear a still small voice of your heavenly father calling out to you saying, trust me. Trust me to make a way when it doesn't make sense. Trust me to make a way when the bank account's in the red and you don't know how you're gonna make it. Trust me to make a way when the bank account's way in the black and you're tempted to trust in your own resources. Trust me to make a way when your child wanders away from me. Trust me to make a way when you see the storm clouds of depression rolling in. Trust me to make a way when you have a best friend at work who's dying and going to hell because they have not said yes to Jesus. Trust me to make a way to share the gospel with them. Trust me to make a way when your marriage is hanging on by a thread and watch what I'll do. Trust me to make a way when the guilt from some past sin haunts your every step. Trust me to make a way when the fear and the anxiety are so overwhelming and so crippling, you cannot get out of bed in the morning. Whatever you're facing today, I wanna tell you, Jesus has made a way to meet the biggest need in your life. He's already gone and paid the biggest debt that you'll ever have. Whatever you're facing, don't look around and measure your own resources and try to handle it yourself. Go to God and say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Please, please make a way for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, <coughs> this time this morning that we've had to worship you and hear from your word, Lord. And I pray that uh, the person in this room this morning, God, who uh, came in struggling with this question, can I count on Uh, Can I count on you, Lord, to make a way for me when there doesn't seem to be any way possible? Lord, I pray that they would hear a resounding yes coming out of the pages of this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would whisper uh, quietly and calmly to their heart, Lord, watch watch me work. Just watch me work. Just take your gift and put it in my hands. Let me do my thing. God, thank you for always making a way for us. Thank you for meeting the greatest need of our lives, Lord. Help us to trust you in the little things every day. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.